This week we're continuing our series on counting sheep, talking about those things in our lives that might keep us uh, awake at night or as we kind of transition through the series, even those things that prevent us from seeing and doing what God has called us to do. Those hindrances to our lives of God working completely in our lives. And um, I was thinking about it this week when I ran across a synopsis, a description of what is considered to be one of the greatest American novels of all times. In fact, if you look at great American novels, those lists, ranking lists, it's usually at one, two, or three. It is right near the top. And most of us probably don't think of it that way because if you're from my generation or a little older, you just think of it as the book you had to get through in high school. All right? And so it's a story of a whale, right? So what's this book? What is it? Moby Dick, right? And so Moby Dick is one of the greatest American novels of all time, but it's a fascinating story because it's told by this guy named Ishmael. In fact, the first line of Moby Dick, one of the most famous first lines of any novel in history is called me Ishmael, right? And he is a crew member with this captain named Ahab. And during the course of the story, we learn that Ahab had his leg taken off by this great white whale, Moby Dick, all right? And so Ahab, in his life, becomes obsessed with the whale. But not just with, i got to find the whale. He becomes obsessed with finding the whale and killing the whale. His anger grows inside of him into a fixation on revenge against the monster at sea. He begins to make decisions that are unwise because he is singularly driven by getting back at that whale. In fact, on the next whale hunting trip he takes, he's a whaler by trade, as he takes that trip out, he begins to override good decisions with poor ones, putting himself, putting his crew and his ship in insanely hazardous situations. Common sense is overruled because the passion of his heart is to find the whale and kill it. Everything else is secondary. Everything else in his life becomes on the back burner for this one task of taking care of getting revenge on the whale. He hurls himself into perilous seas because of the hate and the anger that is welling up inside of him. At last, the white whale is in his grasp. It's there. Do I need to say spoiler alert for something that's 165 years old, by the way? He finally has him in reach. He's right there at it. And for three days, he chases the whale. Crew members begin to get nervous, and they realize that chasing this whale may be the end of them, literally. In fact, a guy on board named Starbuck, Ahab's first mate, the only one that has the courage to say anything to the captain, says, it's not too late even now to just stop. He said, Moby Dick's not after you. It's you, you, that are madly seeking him. He doesn't care, but he's become your obsession. He ignores every danger at sea. Ignores all common sense, and in the end, The ship is lost, and except for one, Ishmael, the crew, is lost. Ahab loses his life and his quest. The great white whale has won. As I was reading that this week, that synopsis and thinking through it, I couldn't help but think of the way 
that anger and hatred and revenge drives us to do things and to say things and to be places and to act in ways that are unwise and make no sense outside of the fact that we just get singularly focused on them. And the problem is, in America today, anger is on the rise. In fact, a recent study showed that 88% of Americans get really mad about something every week. 31% say they do a few times a day. 37% once a day, so if you just add those two up, that's 68% say they get really mad about something every day. Comedian Patton Oswalt was asked recently what book he would have the president read if he could pick any book for the president to read. He wasn't talking about like President Obama. He was just talking about any president, anybody that was going to be president. What one book would you have them to read? And I thought his answer was interesting. He said, I would have him read the book, The Enigma of Anger. The book is the meditation on the history of rage, on the history of anger. And it's so much infecting our politics, our statementship, our pop culture, our social media. He says this. We haven't seen the first truly great leader of the 21st century. But he or she is going to have to address, remedy, and control rage. It is the hidden poison of our existence. In this series, talking about the things that can thwart our walk with the Lord, keep us up at night, get us off track from what God intends for us to do, there may not be one that so easily gets us off track as the one we're going to talk about today, which is anger. Now, some of you, as soon as I say that, are like, well, I'm not angry. You're not talking to me, right? Like, immediately, you just have this defense mechanism go up. But the truth is... Anger is a part of our lives, and not all anger is bad. We don't have time today, but we could go into a whole discussion of what good anger looks like. There are things that we ought to be angry about. There are changes in society. There are changes in the way people are approaching God. There are changes in the way people talk about God. There are changes in the way people interact with one another that are good to be angry about. But the problem is, most of us, even when we have something we have a right to be angry about, don't handle it in a way that is honoring to God. We don't handle it well. And that's not to mention all the times that we get angry about stuff that there's no reason to get angry about, or we get angry about stuff that didn't even happen. Well, she said so-and-so, or I heard somebody said that she said that she told her that she said that about me. And I just can't handle that. She didn't look at me the right way. Well, I was walking down the hall. He didn't even put out his hand to shake him. You know, I've known them all my life. Every time they needed me, I was there. The one time I needed them, they didn't come. He walked out on me. He abandoned us. I mean, sometimes there are things to be angry about. The question is, how do we handle it? And here's the reason that we're talking about this. It's because anger especially can get so embedded in our lives that it begins to control who we are and the decisions that we make. 
And for those of us that are mature Christians, all right? So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, this message is going to apply to you because anger is a part of life. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, particularly if you're a mature follower of Jesus Christ, you've done the Bible studies, you've been to the uh, conferences, you listen to the music, you, you know it, you sing it, you're a part of it, you're reading your Bible, you're going to church, you've been a part of Sunday school, you've taught in places, you've been on mission trips. For those of us in this room that are mature Christians, it is imperative that we live in the finished work of Christ. Christ has already defeated anger in our lives. We have to apply that and live it out. It's imperative that we don't allow anything to have a foothold in our lives, to get just the, an inch in our lives. And it doesn't start like a foothold. It starts with something small. It starts with a small spark of anger that grows into something bigger that then controls us. And it is imperative that we don't let that control us. God wants you to live free. I mean, the verse behind all this, all this, this, this series, which we finish next week, is John 10.10 10, that just says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what Satan wants to do. That's what the enemy wants to do. That's what the world wants to do. That's what, you're, <laughs> that's what the world system is set up, is to, is to steal, kill, and destroy from you. But God, Christ, has come that we might have life and have it to the full. And so how do we do that with anger? With all the anger that's in the world. I mean, it literally is something that can shut down God's possibilities for your life. And in fact, anger can, in your life, help you burn somebody else's life down. But the truth is, regardless if that's the case, if you allow anger to build in your life, it will burn your house and your life down. I remember, um, uh, and I've used this quote before, and it's not original with him. I just remember the situation where it happened. But when uh, Tennessee, uh, it's been years ago now, fired their football coach, Philip Fulmer, been with Tennessee for 20-something years, and just it wasn't quite as successful as they wanted to be, and they fired him. And somebody asked him at the press conference, Coach Fulmer, are you bitter about this? And he said, uh, I've learned that bitterness is like swallowing poison and asking someone else to die. And the thing about anger is as it riles itself up in you, it burns you from the inside out. In fact, in Scripture, we're going to see this in a moment, but in Scripture there is only one temperature that is ever associated with anger, and it's hot. You know that, right? When you get angry, you don't feel cold. You feel angry, like you get heated up. You start to, you start to, blood seems to rush to your head. You just get mad about stuff. The more you think about it, the more mad you get. And it comes from a lot of different places that people handle in a lot of different ways. There are those of you that are spewers. You get mad and you let it go. Like not in the good Elsa kind of way, like you let it go. Right? I mean, somebody comes up to you and some of you are, are, are like uh, crockpot spewers. Like you let it simmer for days and days and days and then one word is said and it is out. Some of you are like, first time something happens, I'm spewing. That's going, right? Some of you are stuffers. You don't spew it out. You just push it down. Just, just going to deal with it. I'm just going to deal with it. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to deal with it. You don't express it. You just keep it inside. Let me just tell you that this is medical science. This isn't uh, coming from me, and I'm obviously not a medical doctor, but stuff I've read, that perhaps the greatest health risk in the world is repressed anger. Stuffed anger. Man, you talk about can't sleep at night. Man, when you're mad about something, you stew on it, you can't think of it, you can't, man, it will, it will keep you up at night. 
then there are the leakers, the people that kind of just every now and then let a little bit out. Like a balloon that's kind of just gradually letting go, right? What do we do with it? What's the proper response to anger? I want to show you today somebody that didn't handle it well. And I'm going to show you a passage of Scripture that shows us how to handle it well. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians 4. We're going to get there in a moment. Or you can, if you've got a smartphone, you can go to fbcgoodlitzville.com slash anger. And we're going to cover three or four different Scriptures. They're all there. Um, that's, by the way, when you're, if, you, uh, if you get home this week and you think, man, I'd like to um, go back and listen to something Lyle said, or uh, I didn't agree with that, I want to hear it again, um, whatever it is, that the website, that, that that site, that place, that page will be where the video is for the week and all of that, all right? And so the backdrop, the way I want to start is talk about a guy that didn't handle it well. And the backdrop for this entire series, if you've been here for the last few weeks, if you haven't, it's a story that's familiar to all of us, or even if you didn't grow up in church, is David and Goliath, right? And we know the story of David and Goliath. We've talked about it for a few, about six weeks now. That what happens is Goliath is this giant, nine-foot giant. He walks out into this valley, and as he's in the valley, he's got his armor on. He looks across at the Israelites. Goliath is part of the Philistines, Israelites' enemies, and he says to them, send out a guy, we'll fight one-on-one. I win, you serve us, you win, we serve you. That's how it's going to work, but don't worry, I'm going to kill you, whoever you send. So send them out. And the Israelites, it says, literally were shaking in their boots. And then this teenage kid named David comes from his home. David is sent from his home where he's been watching sheep. And as he comes from his home, he goes and he meets his brothers out there. He takes lunch to him. His dad gives him some food to so take the lunch to him. So they're all eating. And while they're eating, David hears Goliath come out. And as he hears Goliath come out, he was like, starts talking to people like, why are we letting him talk like this? This is ridiculous. Why is, what in the world are we doing letting him talk like this? There's no reason to let him talk like this. And as he starts to do that, he starts to ask around, hey guys, hey, let me ask you a question. Um, what do you get if you kill Goliath? They're like, well, lots of good stuff. And while he's asking those questions, his older brother, Eliab, hears him. And this is what the scripture says about Eliab. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, now listen, there probably was a pretty good difference in age between them because there were more than like a couple of brothers, Right? Now, they also had children a little more closely than the typical American family does today. And so it's not like there were five years between each kid. But even if you've got seven kids and you've got a year and a half to two years between them, that means you've got a pretty good gap here. And so Eliab's the oldest brother. This is the the big one, the oldest one. He heard him speaking with the men. It says he burned with anger at him. Now, we talked earlier, there are some reasons to be angry about stuff. There are some good reasons to be angry about stuff. This is not the place to be angry about stuff. Eliab is there. He hears his brother talking, and he hears him talking about the Goliath, and he hears him asking the question, why has nobody gone out? And for some reason, Eliab takes that personally, and he gets mad as can be at his brother. Just a quick note. Anybody here ever have a sibling growing up? Right? Did you ever have conflict with your sibling? Yeah, all right. If you are telling me you didn't, I've got one word for you. Liar, all right? It's like there is sibling rivalry. We know sibling rivalry has existed from the dawn of time, literally. And here we see it. I mean, really, he is mad. Look what he says to him. I mean, this is just terrible. Can you imagine older brother saying this to his younger brother? If you have an older brother and a younger brother in the house, yes, you can. All right? 
what, what are you doing here, David? What, do, what does it matter to you? This is not your fight. Go back home. Take care of your little sheep, because that's all you're good for. Little shepherd boy. Go take care of those little sheep you got, because you are a wicked little boy who is out of his league in a place he shouldn't be. Go home to daddy. That's the Lyle paraphrase, all right? But that's what he says, right? What, what are you doing down here? What, who, did you leave anybody with the sheep? Or did you let them run wild, David? Are you forbidding your, pers- your, your responsibilities? I know how conceited you are. You think you know everything. You're that younger brother. And how wicked your heart is. And you came down only to watch the battle. You just want to stick your nose in places that doesn't belong. This is too big for you. You're not ready for this. Go back home. Now, here's what I want to tell you about Eliab. We're going to talk about this in a second. But when someone gets angry like this and spews off like this, can I tell you that it says more about the person that is talking than the person they're mad at? And here's what I want to tell you. When you get angry at somebody, when you get really angry at somebody and you start thinking this way, and don't say that you haven't at some point in your life started thinking this way about other people or situations or circumstances. If you start thinking this way about other people and situations and circumstances, you need to check your own heart in the midst of all of that. Anger many times comes from a place of dealing with something and our inability to figure it out in the midst of God's plan. There is no reason, real reason, for him to be angry at David. He's mostly dealing with his own problems here, and he is just projecting it onto his brother. And the question is, in your life, when anger begins to rile itself up, when anger begins to boil inside of you, what are the issues of your own heart? You know, now read this. You know, I... I grew up in a home where I had an older brother. He's five and a half years older than me. Obviously, we have two boys in our house. And just dealing with older brother, younger brother things. You know what I I think about when it comes to this? Is I put myself in the younger brother situation because I was a younger brother, right? And every younger brother I've ever known, all they want from their older brother is their approval and their encouragement. Like, that's what they want. David's no different. David's a human being. David's not some superhero. And he comes to the battlefield and he is asking questions like, why don't y'all go out there? Why aren't y'all doing something? Why isn't somebody doing something about this? But what he would love for Eliab to say is, man, I'm glad you're concerned about this. Let's talk about it. But instead of getting the acceptance he's looking for, Eliab turns it around and uses his anger to punish and belittle and betray his brother. And what happens here is Eliab's allowing his own personal rejection to be put out onto David. And the truth is, most angry people are hurting people. They feel rejected or hurt or abused or abandoned or left out or walked over or ignored, done wrong. And some of it may even be real. I'm not saying it's pretend. I'm not saying it's made up. But the way we lash out from hearts that have been hurt is that we lash out in anger. Some people get angry because they feel out of control. It's almost like a lie. It's like, I know somebody's supposed to do something about this, but I can't and nobody else I know can. There's nothing we can do about it, David, so quit talking about it. 
And there's one part of this in particular that is troubling as you look at it and the way that we sometimes react to anger to other people. He calls his brother wicked in his heart. And when you begin to make character judgment and describing the conditions of other people's hearts, you are on shaky ground. What he really is saying here is, I'm conceited and I have a wicked heart because I can't handle my little brother talking around here. Now you say, wait a minute, that's kind of a jump, Pastor. How do we know that from here? Well, we know that because of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now you, you, you've got, I told you to open to Ephesians, so don't worry about going back to 16, but you can go look at it sometime. 1 Samuel chapter 16, the chapter right before this, is the chapter where David is anointed as king. And in that chapter, if you remember that chapter, Samuel, the prophet of the nation, the preacher of the nation, comes to little town, Jesse's little town, Bethlehem comes to Jesse's little town, he goes to Jesse's little town, and kind of the understanding is he's going to be at that little town, and he's going to anoint, at least the rumor is he's going to anoint a king. And so he goes to all the town, and they're having this kind of meeting, and he goes up to Jesse, and he says, Jesse, it's out of your family, I need to see all your boys. And Jesse gets all the boys, and he lines up all the boys, and the first one in line is who? Eliab. The oldest brother. Because that's how they would line up. Get oldest to youngest. And Samuel, it says in Scripture, Samuel walks up to Eliab, and he says, in this Scripture, Samuel actually says, this has got to be it. God, this is him. We found him. Now, we don't know if he said that out loud, kind of publicly, or if he just kind of said it to the Lord. But either way, it is obvious that he thinks, Eliab thinks, I mean, if you're the oldest brother in town, you're the oldest brother of Jesse, and they say the son of Jesse is going to be the next king, well, in their culture, the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth didn't get anything compared to the first. The first got a double portion. He was the one in line. It was He was born first. It means that it was his right. And so when Samuel walks up and says, one of the sons of Jesse is going to be the king, he walks up to Eliab, he says he looks the part, he, he, he sounds like the part, he's tall, he's handsome, he's, he's rugged. This has got to be the guy. And God says, no. Now, here's the reason God says no. Samuel says, this has got to be the guy, God. We got him. Just shut down the process. We found him. And God says, no. Because man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. So you know what that means about Eliab? He didn't have the heart to be king. He's the one with the wicked heart. He didn't have the heart to be king. So Eliab, I've mentioned putting yourself in David's shoes. Put yourself in his shoes now. Like you're there. Life's, you're about to be king. And they go to your brother. And Samuel says, this has got to be it. This is another good-looking kid. Okay, maybe there's some, maybe something I don't know about God with that one. But this one's got to be it. And God says, no. And if you're alive, you're like, man, he passed me over. But at least they got my number two guy, my, you know, right-hand man. You know. And then he goes to number three, and number four, and number five. And every time a brother gets passed up, the fire inside of a liar grows. When I grew up, um, uh, we lived, uh, after we moved out of the suburbs of Dyersburg, moved into Dyersburg proper, the big metropolis, we lived in a house that had a furnace for heat. Anybody here grew up in a house that had a furnace for heat? Two of us, that's good to know. All right. 
The furnace that we had was in the floor. It was an in-the-floor furnace. It was on the first floor. I lived in a room on the second floor. Um, when my brother had gone to college, I got the second floor room. That was the only room up there. It was a bedroom. And so I lived up there and slept up there. And in the morning, you would wake up and it would be cold upstairs because the furnace, the heat wouldn't get up there like it was supposed to. So it would be cold. And so you would literally um, get out of bed and sprint down the stairs to stand on top of the furnace. And what I remember about that furnace is I'm standing on top of the furnace. I'm looking down. And it's just, I mean, it was, it was cold, warm, right? Like you don't want to stand, you don't want to get off of that. It's so warm right there. But you would look down and in the bottom you could see the fire that was stoking and that was growing and that was heating the house from the bottom of almost like a pit. And what happens in Eliab's life and what happens in my life and, our, and your life when we allow anger to take residence in our lives is it builds a fire that stokes us consistently towards other people. So how do we deal with it? What do we do? Now, Eliab has this furnace building. It doesn't, he, he has anger and betrayal. He calls this to compare and contrast instead of celebrating and affirming. And he thinks, what do I do? How do I handle this? What about you? Somebody's walked out on you or betrayed you or said something about you or hurt you physically. What do you do with the anger that builds up inside of you? Look at Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 31. In the next five or ten minutes, we're going to cover five things. And I want you to write these down. All right? These are important things. These are, these are going to be helpful to you. I trust that. If they're not helpful today, they'll be helpful sometimes. Some of you are going to need to read these every day this week um, because you need the Word of God kind of in your life every day this week. All right? Find a piece of paper, write it down. Last week I told somebody to do this, and I won't mention his name, Patrick, but he wrote on his leg. Uh, that may not be advisable, all right? So uh, but find somewhere and write it down, all right? Because this is important, and, and you need to, this is a daily kind of thing, right? How many of you ate yesterday? Let me just see. How many of you ate yesterday, all right? How many of you are going to eat again today at some point if you haven't already, all right? How many of you brushed your teeth yesterday and have brushed already today? We noticed those that did not raise their hand, all right? Right? Why do we, why do we eat every day? Because you gotta eat every day to sustain yourself, alright? When you, with the Word of God, it's an everyday kind of thing. You gotta continue to sustain yourself. In Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 31, Paul says this, writing to the, the church at Ephesus, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. He kind of covers it all there, doesn't he? Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Now, we could talk about each of these words, but you know what they mean. You know what bitterness means. You know what wrath means. You know what anger means. Clamor is just kind of talking about somebody um, without any reason behind it. Slander is purposely saying bad things about someone to make people think worse of them. It's kind of vindictive gossip. Malice is just having any thoughts of bad coming to people in your mind. It says, get rid of all of it. And the word right there, beside the, be put away from you, this is going to really kind of blow your mind here. In the original language, it means to be put away. Like to get away, to get rid of, as far away as you can. This is not like see how close you can get to the flame so that you don't get burned. It is leave the room. Okay? This is like when um, 
For instance, somebody in your house sees a spider walking on the floor and yells for you to come get it. They don't mean just kind of push it off to the side a little bit. They mean what? Get it out of here. Right? Anybody have houses like that? Yesterday we're working downstairs. I hear, Lyle, now! Like that means drop whatever you're doing. What is it? There's a spider about to fall on somebody's head. It's on the wall. It's fine. Out of here. Not like, here, y'all want to look at it and play with it for a minute? Like, out of here, right? And so that's why he says, get it out. And you look at it and you think, that sounds, Paul, that's cool. That's a cool statement. But, um, yeah, that's not, that's not, that's not going to happen. Like, you, you don't know what happened to me, Paul. You don't know what she said to me. You don't know how he treated me for 10 years. You don't know the person they passed me over for. You don't know who got the raise when I didn't. Paul, that, Paul, I mean, all due respect, I like you, man. Like, cool guy, but that's unreasonable. Imagine if I walked up to somebody on the street and I just said, hey, I just think you need to let go of all your anger. Just let it go. All the bitterness in your life. Just free yourself and let it go. Now, if I don't get punched, I'm probably going to get yelled at, right? But you don't tell people that you don't know. And Paul here is like, who is he to tell me this? Well, Paul is a guy that at the moment he's writing this is sitting in a prison, falsely accused for a crime, in there because he talked about Jesus. And so he's kind of in a place he could be bitter and slanderous and doing all that. But his point is, don't let this control you. And then he goes on. He takes it a step further. He didn't say just, hey, get that out of there. And this is what he says next. Be kind to one another. <laughs> All right. I, I, maybe I can let the, the hatred go. But be kind? Tender-hearted? Do you know what happens when I'm tender-hearted in this situation? I get hurt again. Forgiving one another. And if that's all that he said, it would seem still like an impossible ask. But he adds one line at the very end that clarifies it everything. As God in Christ forgave you. Five things from this one couple of verses here. This couple of verses. Five things that I see and then we're done. We're going to do this quickly. First of all, in order to understand how to release anger with others, we must first understand that God was angry with us. Now, it's going to sound counterintuitive for a moment, but listen to me. God was angry with us. Can I tell you this? Before you betrayed or belittled anyone else, we betrayed and belittled God. Before anyone ever did anything to offend you, you offended God. And it makes God angry when we sin. Our sin betrays His goodness and belittles His glory. And He is angry at sin. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God is loving. God is merciful. God is gracious. He is good. And yes, all those things are true. But God is also holy and God is righteous and He cannot stand sin. There is a day coming. When the earth will realize how set against sin God is. And it is a day of, in scripture it describes it as a day of judgment and of wrath. Because see, here's the thing about God. It's not like he's a little bit better than us. God is completely different than us. He is on another 
stratosphere from us when it comes. He's not a comparative scale when it comes to righteousness and holiness and perfection. Things that we tolerate, God does not. Things that we view as entertainment, God is not entertained. Things that we allow to creep into our lives, God does not allow to creep into His life. His righteousness is like a flame of glory that burns forever. He is always good, always right, always holy, always just. And when God walks into a contemporary culture that has turned their back on Him and relishes their freedom to sin, when He walks into that contemporary culture, the fire of His anger will burn against sin. It will be a terrifying day. Scripture, I mean, we talk about Revelation and as followers of Jesus Christ, it is important to talk about it. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want you to come. We want us to rescue from all of this. But Scripture describes that the day that the Lord comes, that people are going to be burying themselves under rocks to try to avoid the pain that is there, and that mothers will pray that their children will not be born into it. Why? Because God hates sin. And before we get all caught up, and when we hear something on the news, and you're like, man, God's going to get them. Man, God is going to judge those people. Go get them, God. Go after them. Before we ever do that, we better stop and remember that we are ones who have betrayed and belittled our God. And that even as people that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still continually betray and belittle the God who has chosen us. He is dead set against sin we must remember that god was angry with us but god's grace has overcome his anger there should have been more than alan on that one we must reflect on god's Forgiveness. You say, well, how does remembering God was angry with us help us to forgive other people? Because it reminds us that God had to forgive us. And that his forgiveness was bought on the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ. And there is no one that will ever offend you more than you've already offended God. No one. And so anytime you're angry with someone else, you have to go back to the cross. And realize that God had every right, every right to pour out his anger and his wrath on us. And instead, it tells us in scripture, it was poured out on his son. There's this big word, theological word called propitiation. And and some scholars don't like it, not just because it's hard to pronounce. But the word means that in order for us to be forgiven, God's wrath had to be satisfied on Christ. Now, here's what I want to tell you. I don't, I don't really like saying it because it's hard to say, but I can't avoid it because Scripture uses that word over and over to describe the fact that God's wrath had to be satisfied before you could be forgiven, before I could be forgiven. We are sons and daughters of God. It doesn't mean we get a free pass. There are still expectations and obedience that has to happen. And some of you in this room, you think you've got your um, get out of hell free card and you're going to be good. But scripture teaches that if we continue in our sin, we've got to check our own salvation. And that when we get to heaven, we may be saved, but we may be sad because we are going to miss out on some of the glory that God intended for us because we didn't follow his direction. And God has made peace with us and he has forgiven us. 
And you say, yeah, that, that sounds great. But what's going to happen to the person that hurt me? Which is number three. Trust God or allow God to be your avenger. The true avenger. And yes, he's a marvel to behold, but he will make things right. That was bad, wasn't it? Yeah. Here's what Scripture says. Scripture says that God will take care of it. Well, how's he going to take care of it? Scripture says God will take care of it. In fact, it says don't repay evil for evil. See, that's what we think we got to do. Like somebody does something bad to me, I'm just going to get back at them. I'm going to do something bad. You ever really done something to somebody? Somebody did something to you and you think, I'm going to get back at them. You do something really bad to get back at them. How do you feel after that? Bad, right? Worse? I get in work. I didn't work. I don't get. Me, I don't get even. You got. You got to go back. That's what. That's what the world says. You got to go back. You got to get them. No, you don't. You allow God to be your avenger. Scripture says, "Do not repay evil for evil, but do good to those that do evil to you. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who hurt you." And it says, and then allow God. It says in Scripture. This is in Romans chapter twelve. You can write that down. Look at it later. It says in Romans chapter twelve that God is the one. He says who will avenge us. He spends 12 chapters speaking on the power of the gospel. And then he says, because of what God has already done in Christ to you, because of God's omnipotence and his grace and his mercy and his power and his righteousness, when someone wrongs you, just allow God to be the one that fixes it. You see, we cannot change, we cannot change the external circumstances a lot of times that make us angry. You can't change the person you're mad at. You can't do it. In fact, some of you have experienced this. You'll be mad about something for weeks, maybe years, and you'll go to that person. You finally get up the courage, and we're going to talk about forgiveness in a minute. You think, I'm just going to tell him I forgive him for this because I'm going to, that's got to get out of my life. And I, I'm, I'm, I went to church, and he talked about anger, and I've got to get rid of this. And you go up to him, and you go, man, hey, I just want you to know. Man, you know the thing that happened? Yeah, you know, I'm just forgiving you for that. Man, I, I've thought a lot about it over the last five years. And, man, I just, I just want you to know I'm releasing you from it, and I'm going to ask and tell you that I'm forgiving you. And they're like, what? I hadn't thought about that since then. And then you're like, what? You hadn't thought about it? What are you talking about? Like, you ought to be thinking about, oh, now I'm mad again because you haven't been thinking about what's been keeping me up at night. Like, you can't control it. You allow God to be your avenger. And here's the thing. When God fixes it, he will be fairer. He will be more complete. He will be comprehensive in his dealing with it. And then here's the fourth thing, what Scripture says, forgive. Forgive. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's just going to happen immediately, like, all right, I'm going to walk out here and forgive. But you've got to ask God to give you the strength to forgive. If you live with anger in your life, it's going to destroy you. You must forgive. We'll close with this. Jesus is talking to a group of people and he, um, he's telling stories about the kingdom of God. And he tells them a story most of you have heard, many of you have heard. And he tells them a story about a guy who owed millions of dollars in debt. And he goes in and he says to the guy, I can't pay that. can't pay it. And the guy looks at him and says, well, it's, you owe it. You've got to pay it. And he says, I can't pay it. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'll forgive your debt. And the guy gets excited and runs out in the street. And while he's out in the street, he sees a guy that owes him a couple of dollars. And he says, I need, I, need, I need what you owe me. And the guy says, I can't pay it. And he says, whatever, I'm throwing you in jail. 
And the point of the story is, how can someone that's been forgiven so much not forgive someone that owes so little? I said this earlier, but it's true. Nobody in your life needs to be forgiven from you as much as you need to be forgiven from God. And some of you today need to release the power that that person still holds over you. Let's pray together.